0: Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just have rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is... You're listening to Latin Waves and your host, Sylvia Richardson. I am delighted to be joined by Eve Singler. Yves Singler is a Canadian, Montreal-based writer. He's a political activist. He's a prolific author. He's got over 11 books now. And uh, he's been featured in many places, including The Globe and Mail, The Toronto Star, The Ottawa Citizen, and The Ecologist. He is just a remarkable human being. Thank you so much for being with us, Yves.
1: Thanks for
0: having me. You've been someone who I've admired for a long time. And one of the things that I love about you is the way you bring us to what matters, you know. So many histories are silenced in the making of the history of empire, like Canada. In Canada, we associate ourselves with peacekeeping, with, you know, this very egalitarian and even inclusive society. And yet, when we think about our history abroad, our participation in the oppression of other peoples, um, that doesn't really make the mark. So can we talk a little bit about our role in the history of the Haitian people? Because Haiti is one of those remarkable places, the first place to abolish slavery, and they paid a huge price for it. Um, So in your recent article, you bring us back to this to this place and the importance of our role, and, and what we what is being done in our name in other places and with Haiti specifically.
1: I mean, Haiti, of course, is the place that uh, that abolished racial slavery uh, in the Americas uh, decades and decades before uh, elsewhere, and uh, they fought a very, very violent and um, intense. Uh, war, uh, which ultimately defeated the French, the British, uh, and the Spanish empires with the Americans at different periods, uh, backing uh, uh, different factions. Uh, Canada helped the British. Uh, John Graves Simcoe, who was actually famous, in, there's a Simcoe Day in Ontario, um, who, was, who was actually cited as having uh, um, helped end slavery in Canada. He actually uh, led... The reimposition of slavery during the Haitian Revolution, and uh, boats from Halifax um, supported the uh, the effort to uh, the British effort to uh, reinstall uh, slavery in Haiti and to turn it into a, a, a British uh, uh, colony. So, so the Haitian Revolution is just probably the greatest example of human liberation in the history of humanity. Um, but it had it had immense immense geopolitical consequences uh, consequences, effects, uh, and obviously played a big role in leading to the abolition of slavery uh, uh, more generally. But uh, Haiti has basically been uh, been punished um, since that time, and was isolated for formally isolated, isolated by the U.S. for 60 years. Uh, there's lots of history that the French forced the Haitians to to uh, repay. Um, to pay, or to pay a, a debt of, of independence, so that those who liberated themselves by force of arms were then forced to pay French uh, slave owners for lost property. The lost property was the uh, the land and the, the slaves themselves, um, which had a, a hugely damaging effect on um, Haitian economic and political life. It took Haiti more than 120 years to pay off that uh, debt of independence or ransom of independence, because the French forced the uh, threatened to, uh, to reinvade, um, to force Haiti to pay. So this is, you know, there's a long history. There's very fascinating Haitian history and the Haitian Revolution, of course, is one of the most you know, fascinating uh, uh, historical uh, events really ever. But, uh, but to bring us up to today and, uh, and Canada's world specifically, uh, there's a, a uh, mass protests that have erupted over the past couple of weeks. Uh, not just in Pohoquines, in cities all across the country. And there's uh Cay, uh, and Digua, and Capaycian. There's been major demonstrations, and basically, they're—well, our media will never say this—they're basically protesting the uh, the Canadian-U.S. installed leader. And as hard as this might be to believe, the person who they're protesting is the who's leading haiti today was actually put in place uh through a tweet um and uh basically after uh Jérôme moise was was assassinated the uh the president uh just over a year ago there were three different individuals who claimed that they were the uh the rightful uh individual to take on to continue on to to lead the country and the core group which is a group of u.s france canada uh, Germany, uh, the Organization of American States, UN, and European Union representatives, and it's been really the body that's had an incredible amount of influence at some points, determinant level of influence within Haiti over the past uh, decade, uh, two decades really. And uh, basically, that core group, which is obviously US, is the main power, but Canada's the secondary power in Haiti. They um, they decided that um, Ariel Henri. Was the uh, the rightful leader? Uh, there was no constitutional basis for this. There's no. He doesn't have any popular support. He's not somebody who's you know you know well liked. And uh, they decided through a statement that was posted on Twitter that Ariel Ali was the rightful leader, and um, and uh, the other two uh, main figures within the uh, the Pashtun ruling political party fell into line with what the uh, core group wanted. And um, since that time, since RE has been in office, things were already a very difficult situation, um, have just deteriorated. And there's you know, been major protests and the Canadian government over the past couple of weeks has really led an effort to uh, bring international uh, interest and in, in involvement in Haiti. And they do they do this under the guise of you know, helping Haiti. But if you look at the recent history uh, of the past two decades, and you more it goes back further than that, but the past two decades is very clear. Canada has has consistently supported the uh, the most reactionary elitist uh, factions within Haiti violent factions, you know drug running uh, corrupt uh, political factions. And uh, and that's what they're doing, they're continuing to do today. So they're saying that, you know, we need to have foreign intervention because there's you know, growth of uh, gang violence and there's insecurity problems. But the Canadian government has been uh, promoting the political forces and the political factions in Haiti that are the most uh, inclined towards violence and inclined towards corruption. And on the other hand, they have undermined those political forces that are... are um, uh, challenging, uh, uh, you know, that are, are, are they able to uh, perform a different vision of a more egalitarian, a more functional uh, country. And the most obvious way in which they did that was by overthrowing an elected government and not just an elected president, but thousands of elected officials back in 2004 and uh, installing this coup government that killed thousands. and they, Canada was involved in the, the uh, planning of the coup, bringing together the international forces 13 months that would... Later, uh, orchestrate the ouster of the elected uh, uh, government, and Canada has, throughout the last twenty years, is consistently, at a whole bunch of different moments, as I detail in the article, when there are popular forces that are trying to uh, change the political reality of the country, to to you know take it out of the hands of the you know twelve or fifteen uh, oligarchic families that are that basically control the economy, that. Dominate the politics. Whenever there's political movements that are that are mobilizing, that are going in that direction, the King government consistently supports the status quo. Consistently supports those who uh, turn to violence to repress the uh, the protesters and the, the the social movements. And and we're seeing it right today. So on one hand, the King government says it's trying to help Haiti out and all this high-minded, where you know the. Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to UN, goes to Haiti, then he goes to the Dominican Republic, then he speaks with the head of the United Nations, Secretary General of the United Nations. All of this, he's on Haiti. He goes to the Dominican to speak with Haiti. Two issues he talks to the Secretary General about, Ukraine and Haiti, but they can't say anything about the fact that the Canadian-trained, armed, financed police force has been killing people, protesters, in recent days, right? They They never release a statement saying, you know, the police shouldn't be killing people uh, because they basically support the police killing people because the police are killing people to uh, maintain the status quo. And Canada is a um, is a you know after the U.S. the most important power in entrenching this unjust uh, uh, status quo. in 80 where a handful of families control the economy and the vast majority of people are are completely uh, impoverished.
0: One of the things you said, uh, and I, I really appreciate you reminding us of that, is of the odious debt. You know, we always think about um, the third world. The third world people say, you know, there is no such thing as a third world. Um, in many ways, that was created by these odious debts that people had to pay for liberating themselves from the genocide and enslavery slavery that you know they were under. And in many ways, we still continue there, you know, because the Monroe Doctrine, you know, which came to say that Latin America was the U.S. backyard. And, you know, so they get to exploit and do whatever they want. And so in many ways, um, remembering, you know, why people struggle is part of our path to reconciliation. If we ever to create a world where workers can see each other as allies, you know, not an opposite trenches um can you talk a little bit about um you know we briefly went over the fact that there was a coup in 2004 the one that removed aristide from power and elected president and um and and i want to talk a little bit about why that moment has been so significant because when you have a country where the people no longer are able to rule themselves, whether you do it by NGOs or whether you do it by the presence of the United Nations, which is a military arm of the United States, Um, can can we talk about the significance of that infantilization at the political level of a society?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, the the coup in 2004, the significance was uh, that you had the most popular a uh, politician in the history of Haiti. Um, as President, you had a political party, the family Lava last party of Aristide, that had won eighty uh, percent of some seven thousand elected positions across the country, m- municipal mayors, you know Congress, uh, everything. and And you had the really modest uh, political platform of change of you know the historically excluded. Um, having a bit more say over uh, political life and so the coup wasn't really just designed and the coup you know it, it culminated on February 29th 2004 with the elected president ousted but basically throughout the whole time of the the government they were doing everything they could to sabotage I mean like you know there was a there's this economic destabilization that the, the Canada and the US were doing like by cutting off uh, loans that had already been agreed to by the Inter-American Development Bank. There was a there was a military component to it, where former military, uh, basically mercenaries, were coming in from the Dominican Republic and uh, killing Camilo last people. They killed a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of people uh, toward, close to the border with the Dominican elected officials. They actually even took uh, in 2001, in late 2001, uh, they actually took the uh, the presidential palace for a short period of time in this coup in this coup effort so, so the whole time there was a sort of destabilization of that front. then there's the, then there's you have like Jean Chrétien like, Canada's prime minister of the time, uh, at the time demonizing Aristide at the summit of the Americas so there's this sort of international uh, demonization campaign basically they're doing everything they can to avoid the government that's overwhelmingly popular overwhelmingly elected from being able to pursue Modest reforms that would take away a bit of the power of the uh, oligarchic families, who who are mostly light-skinned uh, um, uh, in this country that's entirely uh, or 90, 90, 99% uh, uh, black, that uh, are completely integrated with foreign. Powers and foreign corporations. So, for instance, the head of the opposition sweatshop owner Andre, Andre Ped was the main subcontractor for and uh, Activewear, which is a Montreal-based uh, apparel, uh, you know, sweatshop uh, company. And they weren't happy when the Aristide government doubled the minimum wage. So you have a uh, a system of credibly unjust uh, system in place, and this uh, government trying to redress. Minimally, again, this, this, this is not like a revolutionary government, but modest reforms, and basically being attacked in every uh, uh, different way. So the so the coup was was one getting rid of government we didn't like, but it was also just destroying a whole political infrastructure. That quite frankly, there was no other political party in the, in the hemisphere that had the level of popular support. That Sami Lavalas had. You look at, you know, the the Bolivarian uh, uh, Revolution in, in in Venezuela, and at the height of the Bolivarian uh, Revolution, you know, you had Chavez winning like 60, I think, up below 60% of the vote, and, and you know, you clearly had a you know quite popular uh, process uh, taking place. But in Haiti, the, you know, the, the the Aristide's popularity, you know, far surpassed that, and the you know the opposition boycotted the presidential election because they knew they were gonna lose. We don't know exactly how popular, you know, he was, but it's probably into the seventy five percent, eighty percent kind of range of what he would have won in a in a fully open and and and, uh, and uh, you know fair fair election. So so the 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 point was to you know crush this part, political party slash movement of the poor and it was to you know Reentrench the the oligarchic uh, class, and also foreign domination, and that's where you bring in the you know UN. It was a foreign force that overthrew the government, and then it was a UN occupation force for for 17 years, and that UN occupation force had incredible impact on Haitian uh, political life, and like right up until today, when when we have a situation where where a leader is essentially being imposed by a group of foreign representatives putting out a tweet i mean that's a, that's a sign of how uh foreign dominated uh the country is and that's the result of you know the 2004 coup the U- UN occupation obviously there's some other factors you know things like the the earthquakes have further weakened Haitian um you know capacity and 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 independence and and, and quite frankly <laughs> the it, incredibly in just sort of to to describe how morally uh, corrupt they are, if you look at what the Kenyan government's reaction to the, earth, the terrible earthquake of 2010 was precisely to to uh, to be fearful that that uh, to send armed troops to block the the possibility that Aristide, who was then in exile in South Africa, that he would return to the country, uh, but also was to take advantage of the weakness. Right, to when you know the earthquake further weakened uh, Haitian Haitian uh, uh, capacities and sovereignty and and the Canadian US government um, played their advantage uh, so you know when you know tens and even hundreds of thousands were dead and you know just complete destruction in polar place they um, the, the, the 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 powers that run the Canadian US government you know use this tragedy to to strengthen their hand in the country, so um, yeah, I mean the, when, the consequences are, of these, you know, interventions are not are not small, and they and they uh, and you know the country goes from one intervention to the, to the next, and one foreign destabilization to the next, and and uh, you know you're going to continue having a situation of you know incredible immiseration uh, 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 with that context.
0: You know, when I think about um, the abolition of slavery in Canada and the U.S., um, I, I, I fear that it simply has taken a different form, you know? And, and you listen to things like uh Forban where they have the sugar plantations, and right after they wrote the abolition to slavery, they also put in a code that said, oh, but... You know no person should be enslaved and uh, unless it is to punish them right and of course the black codes came right after and it meant all the ways that black people could be punished for misbehavior and what was the biggest misbehavior vagrancy lack of employment not being employed and what happens when you impoverish a country so much you know, I mean, like you, you create this, you create this structure and then you utilize that to further crush the people and their ability to live with dignity, to break out of poverty, to break out of the misery that they've been forced to live under because of the, you know, the, the literally the foundation of this society has been slavery and genocide, genocide of indigenous people and slave of black people. Um, so. Let's talk a little bit about Canada's role today, because most people may not talk about Canadian foreign policy being in support of empire or being a corporate government, but that's really what we are. You know, the Canadian government has never been redesigned other than in the image of the uh, of a colony. Right, the the Queen used to. We still have a representative of the Queen in Canada. And we we are literally a place where, you know, people came to exploit the lands, the people. And the genocide of indigenous people is still very much a legacy that we're living with in Canada. Uh, the enslavement of black people and the continual aggression that takes in the form of you know, abject poverty that people are forced to live with is still part of that. So um, let's talk a little bit about today Canada's role, you know, beyond this idea of peacekeeping, you know, beyond this PR that we are a peacekeeping nation. What is really our role in the UN and why is it important for us to take note?
1: Well, uh, the Canadian government, the Canadian foreign policy is completely was so structured to serve the interests of empire. <clears throat> Historically, that was the British Empire, and that's you know, you know the creation of Canada and the and the whole dispossession of indigenous people is is the British Empire extending itself uh, uh, you know westward, and and uh, and then and you know Canada was then Canadians were helped in you know, conquering different parts of Africa as part of British forces, and there was actually Canadians that were uh, colonial governors of of uh, Northern Nigeria, of Ghana, of uh, of Kenya. Um, people trained at the Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario, which was training uh, in a, set up in 1876 to train proper white gentlemen, as one uh, historian of the of the of uh, the, the college uh, described it, and they were basically they had two parts. One, they were going to be officers in British imperialism in Africa and India and elsewhere. And the other part was they were going to uh, subjugate um, Turtle Island and, and what's you know now uh, uh, Canada. But the other, you know, they, so that was Canada was aligned, very deeply aligned with the British Empire until World War II. Uh, but since World War II, Canada has very uh, fluidly uh, gone to alignment with the the American Empire, and, and there's really no uh, ruling class that's better integrated with the American uh, ruling class than the Canadian. You know, the, you see that in <clears throat> all different factions of the Canadian capitalist class, but you also see that with probably the most obviously is with the, the the Canadian military and the intelligence apparatuses of this country, which are completely integrated. With their with their bigger partners to the south, and they um, follow that leads to uh, uh, Canada following U.S. imperial policy. See, you know, it goes it goes from the uh, some of the smallest level of like you know votes at the United Nations and Canada. There's all kinds of you know his, histories of uh, voting patterns at the United Nations and Canada's uh, consistently. Uh, uh um one of the closest alignments at UN votes uh with the US but then but then at a more kind of uh consequential level of you know the Canadian military is setting up bases around the world right now plan to set up seven bases they've set up three of them uh formally that are you know it's designed to be integrated with the pentagon's uh uh plans and you and you see it with you know Canadian military operations from um, you know, bombing Libya in 2011, or, uh, going to war with Iraq in the early 1990s, uh, bombing Serbia in the late 90s, uh, Afghanistan. Uh, you know, that's totally integrated with the American uh, military machine. Or even more recently, with Canadian, you know, Canadian operations. Canes are still fighting and you know, still involved militarily in Iraq. We don't Swiss. With the with the with the U.S. and then again, you know, the Haiti example in 2004, is U.S., French, and Canadian troops that that were uh, that were sent that overthrew the elected government, that basically invaded to overthrow the elected government. So Canada has the Canadian elite see the world and profit from the world in a very similar way to the to the to the U.S. elite, and so so they. You know they've set up so many different you know alliances, be it NORAD, NATO, and there's, there's dozens, hundreds, even of different accords between the Canadian and American military. So they set up, set up all these alliances that that integrate uh, uh, the Canadian military, particularly, but 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 you know more generally Canadian you know corporate and and uh, business and elite interests um, that 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 it sort of. You know, the U.S. doesn't have to like force Canada to join uh, its imperial project. It's it's just totally integrated into the imperial project, and there's all kinds of factors that help explain that. There's the whole colonial process that Canada's you know been part of for 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 you know centuries. There's simple corporate reasons. There's military reasons. There's racial reasons. There's linguistic elements, cultural. Uh, uh, so but but the but the long and the short of it is is that if you're to set up a map of of countries in the world that are most engaged in the US empire's global domination obviously the US is the, the number one country uh but Canada comes in a pretty close you know is it Britain number 2 is it Canada number 2 is it you know Canada's right at the center of of uh of that uh uh, imperial uh, global domination, which we should say that there's a study that came out. Americans have invaded pretty much every... There's like three countries in the world that the U.S. hasn't <clears throat> either invaded or had a major... Uh, some sort of major military engagement with that country. This is a, this is a study that came out about this. And I think it's like since since the early 90s, I think it's like 100 different military... Uh, uh, international military operations. I think that was what the that came out in this, this study that Americans have engaged in. It's just—it's just an incredible list of of, uh, of militarism, and you know Canada's not quite as militaristic, um, but it's uh, but it's right next, close by with the, with the U.S. as it's engaging in its uh, global uh, empire project.
0: In many ways, the first way to arrest that wave of violence that is being. Unleash in our name is to be informed, to become aware, and one way to do it is to read one of your books. Your latest book was uh, "Stand on Guard." For whom, right? So, as we come to the close of our interview, what would you like to say to our listeners, and how would you empower them? Because it, sometimes it's easy to feel powerless and to just let somebody else take charge, but really. We have a responsibility to ourselves and to future generations to not leave an you know an empire as the way of things, to create a society that's egalitarian, that has justice for all people and all beings.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that you pointed out is obviously you know become informed, but also it's to get organized. and And you can do that by you know literally setting up a group with like-minded people or just getting engaged with many of the groups that are already out there.
0: Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for all your work. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Sylvia. Likewise. Thank you.
0: thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.